0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. So it's December 1901, Christmas is a fortnight away for the combatants and Christian de Wet was tracking his arch enemy, brother Pete. It was revenge he was after and as we all know, it's a meal best eaten cold and unfortunately General Christian de Wet was overheating. While he stewed on the information that his hated brother was instrumental in setting up the National Scouts made up of Boer turncoats who now fought for the British Across the world, 1901 brought with it a number of fascinating events, incidents, issues, and innovations. On December 1st, a crowd of 100,000 people turned out at London's Hyde Park to demonstrate in sympathy for recently fired British Army General Redverse Buller. He was now being blamed for the disasters in Natal at Kalenzo and Kop almost two years previously, where the Boers had pulverized the British as they tried to relieve the siege of Ladysmith. But on matters more prosaic, On the 2nd of December 1901, a man by the name of King C. Gillette began selling his safety razor in the United States. He was inspired by something that could be used and then thrown away, thus ensuring future business. It's a bit like Monsanto's seed business these days, but that's another story. Gillette applied for his U.S. patent number 775134 on December 2nd, 1901. His American safety razor company would become the multi-billion dollar behemoth Gillette company. Bizarrely, following the commercial success of disposable razors, what Gillette did was refocus his attention on promoting his views on utopian socialism. Strange, but true. On December 3, 1901, the Australian Parliament passed its Immigration Restriction Act, primarily to restrict non-Europeans from permanently entering Australia. Then on December 7th, 1901, the United Kingdom and Germany delivered an ultimatum to the government of Venezuela after the South American country reneged on bond payments. Venezuelan President Cipriano Castro was given 48 hours to agree to the terms or face a blockade by the Royal Navy and the German Navy. As you can see, some things just never change. On December 9, 1901, the first ever Nobel Prizes were announced, with X ray discoverer Wilhelm Röntgen receiving the first Nobel Prize in Physics. The next day, December 10th, Joseph W. Jones was granted US patent number 688739 for his invention, Production of Sound Records which was purchased immediately by the Columbia Phonograph Company for production of its disc-shaped graphophone records, Jones was paid $25,000, worth around $700,000 in today's moolah. Finally, in the series of amazing things that happened in December 1901, Guglielmo Marconi received the first transatlantic radio signal sent 1,700 miles from Cornwall in England to St. John's in Newfoundland in Canada. That was on the 12th of December. It was the letter S, beep, 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 in Morse code. He is quoted as saying, There was no doubt that the principle of wireless communication had arrived on a transatlantic scale. This was a utility and would prove itself beyond argument as a vital aid to shipping and military communication and all the way to today's internet. And on the same momentous day, 12th of December, in South Africa's Cape Colony, Lieutenant General French finally caught up to General Peter H. Kritzinger, who had led the Boer incursions into the Cape on three occasions. Unfortunately for him, it was three strikes and he was out. General Kritzinger had been a thorn in the English side for more than a year. Born in the Port Elizabeth district of the Eastern Cape in 1870, Kritzinger, in his own words, admits... I was of a very lively disposition, with a fondness for all sorts of fun, and often in mischief, which landed me occasionally in great trouble. My parents obeyed the injunctions of holy writ, in diligently applying the rod, when they thought it necessary. As a child I could but dimly understand and scarcely believe that love was at the root of every chastisement. He was quite naughty. He almost drowned at the age of five, gathering shells on the beach at Port Elizabeth. He was struck by a wave, and the backwash dragged him back into the ocean. But for the pluck and courage of my little playfellow, a lassie of some twelve summers, I was lost. She came to the rescue. I was saved at the last moment a few seconds more, and I must have perished in the deep, he writes in his memoirs. He had fought from the start of the Boer War and was instrumental in leading invasions into the Cape. The first by Herzog and Kritzinger in December 1900 had stirred up some revolt against British rule, but not the conflagration they were hoping. Martial law was imposed in the Northern Cape in December 1900. Then in 1900, martial law was extended to Beaufort West and Carnarvon, and by January to the Western Cape, and finally by late January to the whole of the Cape. The irony is Herzog and Kritzinger had relatively small commandos, 2,000 men at most, holding an area the size of Spain and France combined to ransom. Once across the river, Kritzinger moved on and occupied the small town of Fenterstorp on the Cape side of the Free State border with the aim of obtaining arms, ammunition and equipment, of which there was a severe shortage amongst the men. The small British garrison of 50 surrendered without much trouble, and the members of the commander immediately began to replenish their supplies, aka loot. However, Kritzinger and his men were harried by the British, and for the next few months, the commander became the daily target of British troops. Kritzinger shifted operations to Aberdeen and Pearson, where they attacked the English, seizing horses and ammunition. They continued south, ending up at Somerset East and finally moving into the Bedford District near Grahamstown. That was too much for the British, and Lieutenant General French mobilised drives, which pushed General Kritzinger back north. But en route to Craddock, in the small Karoo semi-desert region, he was trapped. Eventually, he managed to escape. Kritzinger decided to return to the Free State in April 1900. They had not managed to stoke the large-scale uprisings they had hoped for. The Cape Afrikaners refused to attack the English en masse. After moving around and being involved in various encounters in the Ruval and Philippolis areas for some time, Kritzinger again crossed into the Cape for a second time on the 16th of May 1901, leading a commander of 500 men. The Times' History of the War writes... The winter campaign in Cape Colony must be said to have begun in the middle of May, with the return of Kritzinger bearing the rank of assistant commander-in-chief. Kritzinger broke his commando into three, Lotto went to Tarkestad, Commandant Smith to Mariburg, and Kritzinger himself trekked to Maltina. Then Kritzinger and his men crossed the line to Jamestown, which they captured after a fierce battle on the 2nd of June, 1901. The news of his arrival was telegraphed to Lord Kitchener on the same day, and he became furious, particularly after all the preparations and efforts which had been made to capture the Boers. Here they were, invading the Cape, as if all his efforts were worth nothing. Kritzinger was subsequently pursued by two British columns and surprised on two occasions. He barely managed to lead his men to safety and decided to divide his forces once more. Lotto was sent to Middleburg, and Kritzinger travelled in the direction of Craddock, where his commander had a skirmish with troops under Colonel Air Crab in the mountains southwest of the town on the 21st of July, 1901. I spent a month in a tent on these mountains during an archaeology dig some years ago. They are sparse and steep-sided. The caves in this region are covered in sand or bushman paintings some thousands of years old. And, of course, there's a great deal of wildlife about to shoot when you run out of other food. On the 21st of June 1901, Kritzinger had captured part of the Midland Mounted Rifles near Marierburg. Eventually, after a series of battles and skirmishes virtually on a daily basis with the British, Kritzinger headed back to the Free State for a second time. He managed to evade the British in the southern Free State, and eventually, in late 1901, met up with General Jan Smuts at Rheuvel. Remember, I mentioned how Smuts was briefed by Kritzinger about the possible points to enter the Cape and after resting his men and horses for some time and waiting for spring, Kritzinger followed Smuts into the Cape for a third time. He re-entered the Cape by crossing the Orange River during the night of the 11th of December 1901, using a sandbar, which meant an easier crossing of the 101-man commander. Before crossing the river, he attacked about 100 men of Lovat's scouts who were sleeping in their camp at Coacherfontein. That shook a virtual bee's nest of British awake, and Kritzinger was then hotly pursued by Thornycroft of Corp fame. The commander rode to Colesburg trying to escape Thornycroft, but on the first night they came under attack. Thanks to Kritzinger's able command, all his men escaped safely. The British were now more alert, and as with other leaders the British respected, they had spent some time planning Kritzinger's demise. He turned northwards and was pursued by the fifth Lancers, who gave Kritzinger's men and horses no respite. Its rough terrain, the animals were subjected to appalling demands, and at the end of one exhausting day, 130 horses were abandoned by the commander somewhere in the Hanover district. The men taking to their feet, the pursuers came on relentlessly, and on the 16th of December 1901, the 150-man commander was cornered in the Nauport de Ar railway line at Franzmannskopf near Hanover, where a line of blockhouses had been erected. The men had to cross the railway line in broad daylight. Field Coronet J. Fraser and a number of men raced ahead to cut the fence on Kritzinger's orders and the commander stormed through under a hail of bullets from the blockhouses. Then an armoured train arrived on the scene and this is when all began to go horribly wrong for General Kritzinger. I was waiting at the railway line for all the burghers apart from about ten of them whose horses had failed to cross, wrote Kritzinger in his diary. Then I followed the commander, but when I turned around for one more look, I saw my men hobbling across the line on foot. I immediately went to one of the men's aides and was again the target of the enemy fire from which we had just escaped. Just as I turned my horse to ride back, I felt a sudden shock. One of the British sharpshooters had scored a direct hit. In a flash, a bullet tore through the muscles of my left arm and passed through my lungs, just missing my heart. It happened so suddenly that for a few seconds I did not realise I had been wounded. The adrenaline was pumping. He continued riding but the blood was spurting from his wound. I stayed in the saddle until a few burgers came to my aid. They lifted me from the horse carefully, wrapped a blanket around me and carried me to a place of safety. Kritzinger then told his men he would continue to ride but it became apparent he was badly wounded. I soon became aware of the seriousness of the wound and realized that without proper nursing, it would become infected, possibly at the cost of my life. My men also thought it impossible for me to stay with him and decided to send me to a British hospital for medical care. You have to admire the British in a way. He has one of their implacable enemies who knows that if he's wounded and hands himself over to them, they will save his life. Even in war, there's a certain value system that's hard to explain. Kutsinger was then left and the British commando Lieutenant Colonel Beaucump Doran officially took him prisoner. Commandant Louis Vessels took over the command of Kritzinger's commando and carried on with the job of harassing the British. Meanwhile, Kritzinger was taken to Naupurt by ambulance, where he later recovered. Afterwards, he was imprisoned at Graf with Gideon Skippers. A short time later, Skipers was sentenced to death and executed. Kritzinger now faced similar charges. I was instantly removed to jail, where I was confined in a small room. Here, isolated from the rest of the world, I was to spend many anxious days and sleepless nights. During the day, I was allowed to stay a few hours in an inner yard or enclosure of the prison. I desired intensely to move and breathe in the open and pure air, nature's gift to all. But the jailers refused. On the contrary, I was forbidden on penalty of death to address anyone. Advocate F.H.G. Gardner, who later became judge-president of the Cape, stepped in to defend Kritzinger, who faced various charges. Though no coward, I must admit that such conversations were not calculated to produce a favourable impression on my mind. They might have been well-meant, but did more harm than good. It is one thing to face the enemy on the battlefield, where one may defend himself, tis something else to be dangerously, almost mortally wounded, and then to be left at the mercy of the foe. The captured Boer General took to smoking his pipe and staring into the distance, no doubt revisiting the numerous battles he'd undertaken and believing that he was probably doomed to be shot. The charges related to a number of incidents where British soldiers, black and white, were shot down after surrendering. For three consecutive nights, nature's greatest gift, sleep, to suffering humanity, had departed from me. Why could I not sleep, he wrote. Was it fear that kept me awake? No, not that. My conscience was clear, my hands unstained, but locked up in that small room with no one to speak to, my thoughts began to multiply, and I lay meditating night after night. That was enough to make a young man old and grey. Yet there was one friend who helped me to beguile the dreary hours of confinement. That friend was my beloved Pipe. He was put on trial in March 1902 after recovering from the bullet wound. But that is for us to discuss next year in March, two months before the podcast series comes to an end. Other moves, though, are afoot. In November 1901, the British government requested a four-squadron regiment of mounted rifles, and the Canadian government responded. In the departure from previous practice, the unit was recruited as an integral part of the British Army, though retaining its Canadian identity. This meant instead of the British arriving in Canada to train the Canadians, it was the Colonials who would do their own training. This is an important and significant moment in Canada's military history. The Canadian Department of Militia and Defence would equip and train the unit, the British would pay its costs. The response from the public was so enthusiastic that Ottawa, realising there was surplus space on the troop ships, offered to raise another two squadrons. When the units finally sailed from Canada in January 1902, it was a six-squadron regiment of over 900 officers and men. Together with the 10th Canadian Field Hospital, it formed the third Canadian contingent to be sent to South Africa. Appointed to command the new unit was Lieutenant Colonel T.D.B. Evans, who had earlier earned a reputation as the best Canadian leader of mounted troops while in command of the Canadian Mounted Rifles and the second contingent in Eastern Transvaal of South Africa. The majority of the officers and at least a quarter of the men had also previously served. Most of these men would serve again in the atrocious conditions of the Western Front during the First World War, 1940-1980. After a number of weeks training at Newcastle in Natal, the unit was ready for action and moved by rail to Claxtorpe, southwest of Johannesburg. Then the mounted rifles participated in a number of major drives that resulted in the destruction of at least 20% of the Boer forces in the western Transvaal, most of these being captured. It was not all one-sided, however. On the 31st of March, 1902, the unit fought as part of an outnumbered British force at the Battle of Harts River, or Boschbult. Casualties were heavy, including 13 Canadians killed, 40 wounded and 7 missing. With the exception of the first engagement at Paterdeburg in February 1900, Harts River was the bloodiest day of the war for Canada. We will hear more about that in March next year. The unit participated in a number of other drives to round up the Boers before the war ended in May 1902. It returned to Canada at the end of June While its tour of operations had not been long, the 2nd Regiment Canadian Mounted Rifles had proven to be a worthy successor to the units of the 1st Contingent. But now we must stop. It is mid-December 1901. The heat has built up across the felt and Christmas beckons. The vet is manoeuvring himself inexorably towards the Cape, where Jan Smuts has broken up his commando and is heading north trying to evade the British columns. Louis Booter is locked down in the eastern Transvaal. General de La is hemmed in between the mountains of Mahalisburg and the roving British units in the Western Transvaal. The scene is set for a fascinating new year. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have time, and you can send me a message on Twitter at Des Latham or an email through my website, abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> And zonder gedal, langs die mooie vierste wal, het zee voor oorlogsdagen blij. O breng mij terug naar die oud daar waar my Sari woon. Daar onder die mild is bij die groen door een boom, daar won my Sari Mare. Daar onder die mild is bij die groen door een boom, daar won my Sari Mare.